We invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church to this door over here, um, over by the organ on the right side of the sanctuary. Any kids who'd like to be dismissed to Children's Church. For the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Last book of the Bible, chapter 14. This morning we're studying verses 6 to 13 as we continue our study through this challenging but rewarding book, Revelation 14, verses 6 to 13. Let me read the passage. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in His image or for anyone who receives the mark of His name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. So what is the worst news that you've ever received? Have you ever had one of those conversations that started with, I think you need to sit down? Because I'm going to tell you something, you really should be sitting down right now. And somebody breaks some news to you that, you know, when you hear it, it feels like you've been hit by a truck. You know, when you hear this news that the nice, safe, well-ordered, manageable world that you inhabit seems to evaporate, the bottom falls out, and you find yourself kind of free-falling into despair and anxiety. And, and what seems so clear before is now covered with confusion as you wonder, you know, what am I going to do? Where am I going to turn? Uh, have you ever gone to uh, get tests from a doctor about some routine matter and the doctor says, um, I need to talk to you. We found something in the test that we, we weren't looking for, but we found this and we need to talk about it. And you receive some dreadful news. Uh, did you ever have your parents sit down and have the talk, you know, mommy and daddy love you very much, but mommy and daddy don't love each other anymore? That's terrible news that ruins a kid's life it's so hard. Have you ever been told by your spouse that they were unfaithful? Have you ever been laid off? Have you ever had that conversation with your boss? Have you ever been served at your front door with papers you know, by, by a police officer? I remember some bad news our family received. Um, I was trying to think of my own life, bad news. And I had a cousin 
who was one year older than I was, a great kid, but he was killed as a teenager in sort of a very freakish car accident. He was actually stopped. It was a fender bender, but just for whatever reason, in God's providence, he he was killed in that accident. I, I still remember getting the news. It was the middle of the night at our house. Knock at the door. You know, knock at the door, middle of the night, never good news. And and it was my grandma, and she was there. My mom was like, what's going on? And and I still have this memory. You know, these bad news moments are kind of branded into your mind. You just never forget them. I, I can still see looking out and seeing grandma and my mom sobbing together in the entryway to our house as they, you know, heard the news of this, this really uh, nice cousin I had, uh, my mom's nephew. Well, this morning in Revelation 14, we have three angels, each bringing bad news, each bringing progressively worse news as they build upon one another sequentially and thematically as the news gets worse and worse. There's good news at the very end, but you have to get through the bad news to get there first. And the bad news that these angels have to bring is so horrific that whatever bad news you've ever heard in your life or fear ever hearing in your life is actually a trifling matter compared to this bad news. That what these angels have to announce to the world not only will make it feel that the world is coming to an end, but they're actually announcing that the world is coming to an end. And so it's, it's the ultimate bad news. And so I've entitled this sermon, The Worst News Ever. Uh, because we get in this passage the worst news any human being could ever hear in all of our lives. And, and God wants to show it to us so that we will make, be ready and we'll take action to turn to Christ. So let's look at this passage here at the end of chapter 14. Uh, as we've seen, you know, each of the, the visionary sections of Revelation typically end with the vision of the second coming, the final judgment, final salvation. So as we've seen, Revelation is a somewhat repetitive book. And here we are near the end of another visionary section, and we're having yet another glimpse of final judgment, final salvation, the return of Christ. And we have three angels announcing it. So the first angel comes, verse 6, says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So here's, a go- here's an angel announcing the gospel to the world. And at first blush, you could say, wait a minute, that's not a bad news angel, that's a good news angel. I mean, quite literally, he's bringing the good news. The word gospel in Greek literally is good news. That's where we get our word gospel today. It's the good spiel. The good spiel, the gospel. That's where we get that word from. Uh, It's the good news. And so here's this angel pronouncing the good news. In fact, if you look at that verb in this translation where it says he had the eternal gospel to proclaim, that word proclaim, that's the verbal form of the Greek noun gospel. So he had the gospel to gospel forth to the world. So you could say, well, this is actually, this is not a bad news angel, this is a good news angel. And it is. He's pronouncing the gospel. The gospel is always good news. The message that we can be reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, because Jesus Christ has borne the punishment that we deserve, so that if we will just repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we can be forgiven and at peace with God. I mean, that's the good news. And yet, I think even with this first angel, there's something kind of ominous about 
his good news gospel. It's not the same, it doesn't feel quite the same as when maybe you talk to your uncle about the good news and say, hey, you should turn to Christ. It's not the same. There's something heavier and weightier going on here. It's as if, the, it's as if this angel's pronouncing the gospel, but he's sort of putting the emphasis on and landing with both feet on the judgment part of the gospel, which is there. You know, in the gospel message, there's the whole theme. And if we don't repent and believe in Christ, God is coming back as judge. So that there's an urgent sort of warning that, that's attached to the gospel. And it's as if the angel is sort of focusing his attention on that final urgent warning. You know, look, it says that he proclaims to those who live on the earth. If you look at how John in Revelation uses that Greek word for proclaim the gospel, he uses it one other time. It's in chapter 10, verse 7. And there, again, it's used in the context of announcing that the final judgment has finally arrived. So, so again, it's not like us saying, hey, you know, someday Christ is returning, so you should think about re- repenting today and turning to Christ. It's the angel saying, it's here. This is it. In fact, look at verse 7. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. It's here. It's happening now. This is it. The thing that's been announced for millennia has finally coming to fruition. It's time to repent. Even this command, fear God, give Him glory, worship Him in verse 7, those three commandments there, it's kind of fuzzy. Are these invitations or are these edicts? You know, is the spirit of it kind of like one final global altar call? Or is it more like every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord, and today is the day, so everybody worship Him. Whether you trust Him or not, all must bow before Christ. It it has a a sort of a commanding imperative feel to it that's a little bit different. So yes, it's the good news, but it's it's the judgment urgency part of the good news. You know, it's, it's more like you have to get in the ark to be saved, and the door of the ark is now closing. It's that kind of announcement. So, you know, you don't necessarily get the sense from this gospel announcement that there's going to be massive global conversions. You know, maybe a few might be saved, who knows, but you, you get the sense that this is it, the door of the ark is closing, and that's it. And it's time uh, for that final judgment to arrive. It, it's like this angel is announcing the end of the gospel era. Maybe is another way to think about it. We're in the gospel era right now. Jesus began the gospel era by sending out his messengers and saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go out and make disciples. So the disciples went out. Book of Acts, they're making disciples. The gospel spreading all over the Roman Empire. After the book of Acts, the gospel has continued to spread. The gospel has come to Boston. The gospel has gone to Australia. The gospel is going to Central Asia. It's going all over the world, just, just like a virus. But there's some day when the gospel era ends. And it's over. And, you know, this gospel must be preached to all nations as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And so it's, it's like this angel is announcing the gospel conclusion. He's drawing the whole thing to a close. And he, and he does it by emphasizing the judgment has come. And, you know, that's a part of the gospel we have to remember when we share the gospel with others, that there's that gospel urgency to it too, that Christ is coming back. 
We don't have multiple lives of reincarnations to work out the moral kinks in our soul. This is the time to come to Christ. So repent and come to Christ. That urgency. And I think sometimes you know, we can be tempted to kind of soft sell that part of the Gospel. And, and so there's definitely a sort of Americanized, sanitized form of the Gospel that doesn't ever really get to that. You, you know, where we say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. True. You know, but that's not the gospel. True to an extent, but what about Christ died for our sins to reconcile us from God, to save us from His wrath? You know, where is that? Uh, you know, there's the Joel Olstein, Olstein false gospel, which is, uh, you know, your best life now. I thought my best life was with Christ in heaven. Anyway, you know, where, what is our best life? But it's a prosperity gospel. It's what Jeff was talking about. Uh, it's the gospel that if you believe in Jesus, you can have you know, the boyfriend you always wanted, the house you always wanted, the car you always wanted. It's a false gospel. You know? Even, even you know, the purpose-driven life. It's true, when we come to Jesus, He fills our life with purpose. God's ultimate purpose. But that's not the gospel. That's a result of the gospel. That's a, a fruit of the gospel. But the gospel isn't, you need purpose. The gospel is, you need to be forgiven. And I need to be forgiven and reconciled to God from His wrath. And, and so, I think it's just important when we think about how we proclaim the Gospel. When I think about how I proclaim the Gospel, that, that when those opportunities come, I'm not afraid to sort of deny that part of it, which is, and there's urgency. Judgment is coming. Christ is coming. And we need to remind ourselves of that. Remind others. You know, what, what is it that's keeping you from Christ? You need to come to the Lord. Someday the door of the ark will shut. And even if you're really, really, really close to the door, you're not in the ark. You know, when a door shuts, you're just on one side of the door or the other. You could be really close. You're here right now. You're really close to the door. But they're not in the door necessarily. There's a big difference between those two things. Uh, you could be an expert on the door. You could go home after this and say, I heard a great sermon on the door. It's good. <laughs> pastor told us about the gospel. Really? What's the gospel? It's the news that Jesus died for our sins and if we repent and believe in Him, we can be forgiven and have eternal life with God and a new life. Oh, that's great. You know, and you can know all about the door. But if you're not in the door, when the door shuts, then you're not in the door. And, and so this is a call to come into the ark. The door will shut for everybody, either at the day of our death or when Christ returns, whichever is first. That's the door shutting. And so there's an urgency here to come to Christ. This is, we don't have forever. God is patient. He's patient. But His patience will reach a point when it will be done. So that's the first angel. Good news, but with an ominous, urgent warning that, that calls us to turn to Christ because the end is coming. And then the second angel comes, verse 8. He even has worse news. Um, he has news that the, the world is coming to an end. Verse 8, A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So here's the, the first angel saying the gospel period is coming to an end. This is it. The door is shutting. It's over. And then the next angel says, Fallen is Babylon the great. And, and this is a prophecy about the, the downfall of the whole organized system of humanity in opposition to God. It's the world system of unbelief 
that rejects the claims of Christ and persecutes God's people and lives by its own terms. That whole world system that we live in is coming to an end at some point. You know, that's what it means here when it says Babylon the Great. You know, what's Babylon the Great? Why is it called Babylon? Uh, why is the world called Babylon? Well, you know, think of the Old Testament. Who was Babylon? Babylon was one of Israel's great enemies. And we just read about it in Zechariah. It was one of those horns that attacked Israel and destroyed it. Uh, the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. invaded Jerusalem. They burned down its walls. They burned down the temple. They destroyed the place. They took Israel into captivity. And so Babylon is sort of the essence of persecuting, idolatrous, God-denying power organized in this world against God and against His people. Now, in the time of Revelation, when this book was written in the 1st century A.D., who was Babylon? It was the Roman Empire. Uh, Rome was the, the great, evil, idolatrous, persecuting government that was against God and against God's people. In fact, in lots of uh, Christian and Jewish literature outside of the New Testament, it was very common to call Rome Babylon and, and uh, the, the nation and the city um, because people saw the parallels. I mean, think about the Jews who lived in the first century A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. Rome came. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, just like the Babylonians had done. So in a very literal sense, you know, the Jewish people saw Rome as a second Babel, Babylon coming to destroy God's people. So Babylon then becomes this very rich, uh, threatening image and symbol of persecution and destruction of God's people. In fact, look what it does. Again, look at verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adultery. So now the imagery shifts a little bit. Now we're not talking about a city. The imagery now is just, you know, Revelation does this, piles symbols upon symbols and images upon images. Now the image is of kind of a, a seductress who is pushing wine on people. Here, drink this. Hey, join the party. Have a drink. Relax. You know, and oh, the nations are drinking her wine. And, and as they become intoxicated with it, they become intoxicated with worshiping other gods and false gods. That's what adultery often talks about. Like Chris said last week in his sermon, adultery in Revelation is typically kind of a metaphor for uh, unfaithfulness and idol worship. And so here it's, it's all the nations and all the people of the world worshiping this woman. So now you have these two cities and two women. You have Babylon, which symbolizes the world in opposition to Christ and rejecting Jesus. And then you have the New Jerusalem, which is the church, the people of God who have been saved and who worship Christ. One is the prostitute, the seductress. One is the bride of Christ. And so you have all these sort of uh, opposite images and opposite figures. One group worships the beast. One group worships the lamb. And so here is the important part in verse 8. The best part of this are those first two words of the announcement. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. There is a day when Babylon will fall. There is coming a day when God will grab the pillars of Babylon like Samson in the temple of Dagon and He's going to shake the world down to dust. And the dust will be so fine and so complete that you couldn't ever rebuild it, nor will there be anyone left to do the rebuilding. It will just be done. And shaken and destroyed. But that's the worst news ever. You guys remember back in 2008, fall of 2008, 
when all the financial stuff went kaplooey and stock market started crashing and all the bailouts started happening and, and people were freaking out. Like, it, okay, a moment of honesty. Anyone else here thinking, I should buy like two cows, five pigs, <laughs> several boxes of ammo, because, you know, it's going to get apocalyptic here. Like, the world is going to collapse. You know, I need to go into survivalist mode. You know, this, this fear that the world was coming to an end, and we all kind of were like, oh, what's it going to be? But, you know, that, that whole thing that happened was like a tiny little leaf shaking compared to this collapse. That, that's coming. And we read about the terrible things happening in Greece and we pray for God's gospel to have inroads. Greece needs the gospel. We need to pray for Greece. Hear about the things going on there. Hear about the, the unrest in Thailand right now as there's civil war between the, the different parties. We need, to, we need to pray for Thailand. You know, the gospel needs to make an advance in Thailand to those people there just as it's come to Boston. Um, but those are like little twigs shaking in the wind compared to the fall of Babylon that's coming. Nothing left. You know, when Babylon falls, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. When the door to the ark shut and the rain came down, it wiped the earth clean. It was a complete scrubbing of wicked humanity so that nothing was left. It was all gone. When the fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family got out, it wasn't like it was just burned it. It was like it was gone. So that if you were to take an archaeologist like a week after Sodom and Gomorrah and be like, okay, this is where Sodom and Gomorrah was, and he'd be like, what do you mean? It's just ashes. It's just There wouldn't be any archaeology to do. There wouldn't be anything to find. It was just ashes. And, you know, was there a volcano here? What's all this molten rock? You know, what, what happened here? I don't see a volcano. Why is there a volcano in a valley? I don't understand. You know, it would be confusing. Gone. And so too, when, when, God's, when the tsunami of God's judgment finally makes landfall against the sandcastles of Babylon, it's going to be gone. There's a day of judgment coming for this world where God will bring down our, our technology, our political institutions, our education. All the stuff we've built and we put our hope in will be gone. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. What are we trusting in? What's our hope in? What's my hope in? You know, yeah, we live in this world, we enjoy this world that God has made, but oh, woe to us if we cling to this world with the idolatrous death grip and think that a pile of money or an education or a relationship or a sports team is what's ultimate. Because these things will be swept away. You know, what is it that we look to for our confidence and our righteousness and our, our standing before God? You know, people climb the mountains of this world. They stand on the Mount Everest of this world. And you know, the captains of industry, the famous, the powerful. And, you know, I stand upon this great mountain I have climbed. And, and they look down. There's the church way down in the valley building this stupid little boat. You know, what are you doing, people? To conquer the world by your own strength when the flood comes. I don't care what mountain you're on, it'll be underwater. But the boat will float. The ark of salvation will float. Christ is the Savior. So we, we need to put our hope in Christ and abandon ourselves to Him, that all we have is Him. Only the cross will float when the flood comes. Terrible news. But it actually gets worse. 
The third angel has worse news. And in fact, you could say that the third angel's news is so bad, it's so awful, that it actually makes the second angel seem not so bad. You know, given what the third angel's got to say, I'd be okay with second angel, is how bad this is. You know, the second angel is, is terrible. What's worse than the end of the world? What's worse than the collapse of everything? Eternal damnation is worse. And not only would I say that this, this third angel is worse of the three, but I would say it's the worst news ever that could, anyone could ever hear. And it's the message that after God comes against this world, there will be a great judgment and a great sorting out and a final, a final hell that must be faced. Look at verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. What, what, a, what a vivid, horrifying description of hell. It's a text that is so um, disturbing that I feel like studying this text is kind of like trying to look into the sun for a prolonged period. It hurts. You, want, you just instinctively want to look away from it. But let us look, if we have courage, for just a few moments. See if we can stare at this text. Let me make uh, just a few observations about it. Number one, observation number one that after Christ returns, there will be a great sorting out that takes place. Again, verse eight, verse 9, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury. So, so after the whole world is done, after Babylon falls, the, the Scriptures tell us there's a resurrection of the dead at some point. And in that resurrection, God will sort out people. That it won't just be kind of a mass thing, but it will be taking each person one at a time and putting them here or putting them there. Worshippers of the beast or worshippers of the lamb. Like, like a child with a bag of marbles. You know how kids can just sit and sort things for hours? Entertain themselves? You know, sorting things? God will be sorting out humanity. This marble here, that marble there. Like a bunch of people coming off an airplane from a foreign flight you know, hundreds of people coming through the dragging their bags, tired from this flight, and will come to the customs. And there at that customs, you don't just move through customs in a huge mass. You get in a line, and one by one, you take your passport. Citizen, non-citizen. One by one, each passport is looked at. Each name is read. God will sort things out. And for those who've worshipped the beast, for those who've rejected Christ and instead have worshipped all any of the pantheon of gods that this world has to offer, any of the pantheon of philosophies and religions and self-righteousness, look what he has for them. He says, verse 10, He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. So it's a fitting judgment for those who've drunk the wine of Babylon. God says, okay, you want wine? I've got wine. 
And so there's this com- very, very famous Old Testament image, very common Old Testament image of judgment as giving someone a cup of wrath. It's like God sort of takes the nations and you know, yanks their mouth open and then pours this wine into them and they're going to get drunk and then collapse in the gutter and be destroyed. They're going to stagger and stumble and fall. It's sort of common Old Testament prophetic language. So this is this cup of wrath. And notice that this cup that's finally coming at, on the last day is the full strength wrath. Everything else we've seen up to the Bible at this point, every image of judgment in the Bible at this point has been half strength, partial strength. Sodom and Gomorrah, not full strength. Noah and the ark, not full strength. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, not full strength. We haven't seen full strength yet. Where, Where God's wrath is undiluted and pure. 200 proof wrath wine. No tonic water, no ice cubes. It's not, it's not wine and Coke. I mean, it's not a mixture of things. It's just pure wrath of God, unfiltered, unwatered down, where finally God comes in His judgment. You know, people always shake their fist at God and they say, if God is real, why is there so much bad in the world? It's like God is being patient. Don't worry. He's going to deal with the bad in the world on that day. But the reason he's not dealing with it now is because he's trying to hold the ark door open in patient mercy upon a world. Because here's the thing. If I want God to deal with the bad in the world, am I willing to look in the mirror and see the bad in the world? You know? Why is it that I want God to deal with the bad in the world, but it's always everywhere else except right here? That's why. Because he's more merciful than I even understand. But there is coming a day when God will say, enough, that's it. It's done. I, I, I've commented on this before, but I, I think of that scene in the, the, uh, the front of the Sistine Chapel painted by Michelangelo where it's the judgment day and Jesus is you know, standing up and Mary is there next to Him. Well, forget that part. But, you know, but anyway, Mary's there. And Mary, but what's Mary doing in the painting? She's covering her face. Like, the time has come. I don't want to see this. When finally Jesus says, that's it. And the judgment has arrived. And if we can steal our courage up and stare a little bit longer at this verse, what does the full strength of God's wrath look like? It looks like eternal torment. It says in verse 10, He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Later on, there is no rest for those day and night who worship the beast in His image. It's torment, it's misery, it's suffering. And how long does it last? Verse 11. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. It's eternal torment. There's an idea in some Christian circles about hell. It's called the doctrine of annihilationism. It's the idea that in hell we're actually extinguished, kind of like like you're a match, and hell is where God just kind of goes, you know, and then you just cease to exist forever. And that's, and that's a, it's a common image. It's sort of something we can swallow a little easier. But I just say it's not a biblical image. The Scriptures are, are very clear about hell. That it's conscious torment forever. And, and, you know, we read that and we go, boy, that just seems so excessive. I mean, it's such, such overkill. Why would God do that? I mean, I know I've done some things wrong in my life, but really? Eternal torment? I mean, it just seems so big. And the reason it seems so excessive to us 
is because we do not see clearly the holiness of God or the vileness of sin. We don't really see it. We've watered it down in our own minds like, I'm okay, you're okay. But what we don't realize is is that this punishment actually fits the crime. The time will fit the crime. Because what is the crime? It is an infinite crime of rejecting the glory of God. God's God's glory is infinitely valuable. God's glory is more valuable than a baby. God's glory is more precious than true love. God's glory is more wonderful than a, a sunrise at the sea. Think of the most precious treasure you could think of, and it's just a dim reflection of the value of God. God is infinitely precious and wonderful. And so we have committed an infinite crime by rejecting the infinite value and worth of God and His glory. And so an infinite crime deserves an infinite consequence. So we will get out of hell when we're done being guilty for rejecting God. Which is never. Because you never pay that back. It's who He is that makes the crime so horrific. And so this is, this is the judgment of God. It's terrifying. And then perhaps the most terrifying part of it, the part that really got me, besides thinking of eternal torment, I mean, imagine being there 10,000 years and realizing it just started. You know, if, if you were in torment for a thousand years and you knew that at year 5,000 it would be over, it would be just a tiny, 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 tiny speck of hope, but at least it would be some hope. But it's more like Dante's Inferno. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. It's the ultimate torment of hopelessness and despair. And yeah, I think that the scariest part of this image, the most unsettling thing to me, was in verse 10. He will be tormented with burning sulfur, literally in Greek, fire and brimstone in Greek. He'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. That God is there actively judging in hell. There's another kind of evangelical um, figure of speech when we talk about hell. Have you ever heard hell described this way? Hell is eternal separation from God. It's true in a sense. We're eternally separated from His blessing and His salvation. But not, not in an absolute sense. God is present in hell as, just as He's present in heaven. You know, God is there. You know, there's this image of hell that it's like, well, hell is the place where people who don't want God, and so God just gives them what they want. Or, or you know, it's been described that hell is a door with locks and handles on the inside. The only reason people are in hell is because that's where they want to be. No one's going to want to be there. You know? God is just as present in hell as in heaven. Here's the difference. Maybe a different way to think about hell is this. Heaven is the place where sinful people stand in the immediate unfiltered presence of God with a mediator, Jesus Christ. Hell is where people stand, sinners stand in the unfiltered, immediate presence of God with no mediator and no blood of Christ. That's the difference. It's His holiness expressed in the presence of the angels and the presence of Christ. It's terrifying. But we, we, we preach this not because we like it, not because it's... We are sadistic. It's because it's true. We're warning people. You know, this is hell. And yet, what is it that I'm worried about all the time? Not this. 
I'm worried about mortgage payments and oh, I got one kid going to soccer and another kid's going to piano at the same time. How am I going to get them all there? And I'm worried about, you know, I got, I got a meeting this night and I got, you know, that's the stuff I'm worried about. And if, if we do get actually bad news in this life, we marshal all of our resources to deal with it. You know, I got laid off or some bad thing happened. Okay, I'm going to fix it. I'm, everything's focused on that. I'm going to get on the prayer chain. I'm going to tell people. I'm going to get everyone helping me solve this problem. How much energy do I put into concern about eternal salvation? And so we study this because it's a warning. We need to get our head out of the sand and see what God is doing and recognize there's an eternal day of judgment coming. The reason we preach hell is because... Jesus Christ preached hell. You want to know who the biggest hellfire and damnation preacher is in the Bible? It's Jesus. Was it because Jesus was mean or sadistic or negative or that Jesus had issues that He was working out through His preaching? I mean, no. It wasn't anything like that. He preached hell because He loved people and He wanted people to be warned about the eternal consequences that were at stake and why He had come. So what does this mean for us who are followers of Jesus? There's a lot of bad news here. But what about for, what's the application for us, for those of us who have repented of our sins, we've, we're trusting in Jesus, we love Him, and we're seeking to follow Him. What's the application? What, what does this mean for us, this meditation on the worst news ever? Well, look at verse 12 and 13. Two applications quickly. Verse 12. The first application is we've got to stay the course in following Christ. Verse 12, this calls for what? Patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. We've got to endure. We've got to run the race. The Christian life's a marathon. We've got to stay at it. Why? Because look at what's at stake. <laughs> you know, sometimes we think in the Christian life, you ever get this thought, is this really worth it? Like, oh, so tiring being a Christian sometimes. All these pleasures I'm denying myself. What the world does without any moral conscience problems, they just do it, and I say no. I mean, look, you're here on Sunday morning. You could have slept in, right? But part of being a Christian is gathering with a local body to worship the Lord together. It's part of our worship of God. Like, I could have slept in. I could have done this. I could have done that. It's so hard being a Christian. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth it being the black sheep of my family where everyone thinks I joined a cult because I go to church? You know, is it really worth it to go through all of that? You know, wouldn't it just be easier at Thanksgiving if instead of the turkey, you know, we could kill the elephant in the room and I would just stop being a Christian and everyone would be like, yay, you came back to your senses. Wouldn't it be easier? You know, the Christian life is a marathon, people. It's not, it's not a, 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 a tiptoe through the tulips. It is a hard race. It's long. It's tiring. Are there mountaintop experiences in the Christian life? Yes. But they're the exceptions. I think the, the majority of the Christian life is a steady plod of faithfulness day by day to the Lord. It's not glamorous. It's, I, I so appreciated Jeff's testimony. It's not the gospel of experiences. As if Christianity was about just kind of everyday one-upping a more super spiritual experience. It's that faithful, steady walk of carrying the cross of Christ in this world, and it's tiring. And sometimes we're tempted to give up. There may be some of you here are tempted to compromise. We're all tempted to compromise. The beast comes to us every day with the wine. Sure, you don't want to drink. 
you know? Here, just, you know, what do you do with, what do you do with wine? Don't you, like, swirl it and sniff it or you know, whatever. Whatever you're supposed to do if you know what to do with wine. And, and so the beast comes and is swirling and sniffing and tests the nose. You sure you don't want this? You sure? i got a glass here for you. We all have these temptations to compromise with the world, to compromise with sin. Each of us has different areas of temptation. Satan knows where to hit each of us personally. So we have to resist and not get off the track. I had a friend in high school. Um, he was my BFF. <laughs> uh, his name was Dave. We, just, we were like peas in a pod. I mean, so close. Like, we slept over at each other's house every week. Stayed up you know, late laughing and watching movies and just had a great time together. He was a smart guy, an athletic guy. And he started coming to church with me, made a profession of faith, was really into the, the church and the youth group for like a year and a half. Then I remember just coming to school one day, walking in on a Monday morning after a weekend, and Dave kind of sort of was avoiding me. And I'm like, what, what's that all about? And, and then I heard people talking to Dave. Man, you were wild at the party last night. What happened to you? You never come before, but whoa, you can party, dude. That was awesome, you know, and all that stuff. And, and he just left, just abandoned the faith like that. And, you know, I talked to him on the phone. We've, every once in a while, we, we've connected on the phone over the years. And he's abandoned the gospel, and he's adopted a New Age belief system. You know, he told me over the phone, I believe that you are God, and I am God, and we're all God. And I'm just like, that is the dumbest thing <laughs> like if there's if there's one thing empirically verifiable it's that human beings are not divine i mean there's anything we can prove you know um and he's just he's just law he's just believing nonsense and so i don't was he ever really a christian he was church but you know there's a huge difference between being churched and being a christian you know that you, someone can get churched and not be in the ark they're just kind of ark experts. They can give lectures on it, but they're not in the ark. You can be a church person, a catechized, confirmed person, but not a real Christian in a biblical sense. So stay the course, people. I don't know what temptations you're facing, but keep at it. It's so worth it. When you consider the long-term picture of the hell to be avoided, the heaven to be gained, it's totally worth it. And application number two, realize that you're blessed in Christ, specifically, get this, when you cross the finish line and finally die. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. So this is the second of seven blessings in Revelation. Are we surprised that there are seven blessings? Here's the second one. The first one was, blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy. Here's the second. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. You get that? Not just, don't be afraid of dying. You're blessed if you die in the Lord. You should be happy. You should celebrate if you die as a Christian. That's your best day. What? Blessed? Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Why? Because we cross the finish line. Finally, we can, what it says, what does the Holy Spirit say? They will rest from their labors. If hell is the place of no rest, heaven is the place of eternal rest. If you've ever finished a marathon, any marathoners out there, it's like all the training, all the preparation, all the pain is over when you cross the finish line. And not only that, your deeds follow you. 
verse 13, so that all, everything you did for Christ matters. It's all worth it. It's all coming behind you. Just run the race. It'll all catch up to you. Everything you did along the way, once you finish, will just sort of be swept up and brought. Not that our deeds save us, but they are the evidence that we truly are saved. So that on the great day of judgment, when God is sorting them out, Jesus will say, this one is one of mine. Let me show you the proof. Here are the deeds that give evidence to the reality of the salvation. And this one is mine. It's totally worth it. Run the race. I love talking to the old saints. The old saints who just tell you right to your face, man, I'm ready to go see Jesus. Wow. You know, I'm still so... I'm, I'm young. I'm ambitious. I want to build a church building, you know. I want, I want to do things. I, I have projects in my mind. I want to write things. I, you know, I have dreams. And I love the old saints who are like, just go to see Jesus. That's where it's at. Jeremy, like, come on. That stuff doesn't matter. Let's go see Jesus. What's the best news you've ever heard? <laughs> okay. All right, wait a minute, wait a minute. Were you in the first service? That's actually the conclusion to my sermon. The best news you could ever hear is that for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, and I mean whoever, whoever believes in Him, whatever your baggage, background, rap sheet, whoever believes in Him will not perish like we just read. And by perish, we don't just mean die. We mean eternal perish. Will not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you have Christ. Would you please stand and let's sing together.